This podcast is made possible with support from Earthworks Audio. Earthworks develops, designs, and produces technologies that are beautiful, simple to use, and push the envelope on realism in audio amplification, capture, and reproduction. Learn more at earthworksaudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. February 2024 will see the release of MGMT's seventh album, Loss of Life. Tapop's online publisher, Jeff Stanfield, sat down for a chat with the band's founding members, Andrew Van Wingarden and Ben Goldwasser, to discuss the recording of the album, their longtime working relationship with producer-mixer Dave Fridman, and finding their new favorite microphone. Enjoy! It's a false alarm, but the pain of the bubblegum dog is finally catching up with me. Yes, thank you guys for your time today. Um, been enjoying the new record. I haven't had that much time to listen to it, but knowing what I know about your band seems like yet another sort of departure from what you guys have done in the past, which is always fun. I, I, I like the idea of like not making the same record over and over again. Was there a separate concept going in to make Loss of Life, or are you guys just constantly recording and just kind of uh, taking in music from what you're listening to or what you've been turned on to recently or just the frame of mind and just constantly evolving with your songwriting process and uh, kind of putting out what you guys are doing at the time, or are you sort of coalescing things that make sense together? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think... I mean, not ne- not necessarily intentionally, but we're we're not a very prolific band, and it's not like we're always recording things or always putting together ideas. I think it's when we when we start working on a record, it's like uh, like a culmination of a lot of things that lead up to a moment and kind of like feeling like it's it's a snapshot of where we are in time. But but once we start working on a record record it's it's like we really have to decide like okay now we're working on a record and um and there tends to be a moment when things kind of pick up or it starts to uh it starts to make sense like what um what the vibe of the record is going to be (laughs) i mean what is the process for making the records has it been uh traditionally you guys throwing song ideas back and forth and then you kind of formally get together or or is it a process of sending files back and forth do you guys have home studios like how did you guys make this record and how has it been different from those in the past if if it has been well without spending too much time uh talking about covid and lockdown and stuff i think that um that obviously made it a little bit tougher to do things in person. And, um, we, we kind of started the first, did the first couple of sessions for this album in 2021, um, and hadn't really sent many things back and forth before, but we just went back up to, to, um, Tarbox with Dave Fridman and, and had sort of a more, uh, 
experimental writing session. Um, and you know, it was, it was pretty productive, but I think at the time it was hard for us to understand what, what it was because things hadn't coalesced. We hadn't really come together with even discussing what, what we wanted to make. And so while like, uh, people in the streets and nothing changes, both kind of took shape in those sessions, it didn't really feel like the album started to make sense until the next year um, when Ben was coming over to New York and we were working at Patrick Wimberly's studio. So I mean, we we did like do some sending of files back and forth, but I think to, to get the momentum going, it was in-person sessions that we were doing where it kind of started to make sense. Yeah, I mean, talk about the working with Dave a little bit. I mean, you've obviously worked with him on several projects and several records over the years, and he has such mm -hmm. a distinct sound. I mean, I I didn't know who produced or mixed or anything like that. Uh, I knew, I mean, I knew you'd worked with him on this previous records, but, um, you know, there, there's definitely a Fridman sound and vibe. And when I listened to some of this stuff, some of that really came through, of course. Um, but talk about those experimental sessions or just going there and just sort of getting and going and working. What, what, what is that like? Well, the, the first sessions were funny because he, so he, um, he got like a really nice new, uh, Neve console in his studio, which like he'd been working on, on this Otari console for like forever. Like I think, you know, most of his like really well-known records were made on it and, it definitely has there's a there's a sound to it when you push it um but then so he built an addition to his studio and he moved the otari console into the kind of studio b room and that's where like the the first sessions that we were going up there we were um doing like a lot of tracking on that kind of without him while he was working on other stuff and then he would track like if we wanted to record drums he would track drums on the on the neve and then i mean i think what's interesting about like the idea of, of someone having a sound is like, it's so much not about the gear where like, you know, he's mixing through this board that has like way more headroom and is way just cleaner and pristine, but it still ends up sounding like a Dave Fridman record, you know, it's, and, um, and it's funny too, because I think like at times when, you know, like we didn't know as much about how, music was recorded or how to get certain sounds like we would hear things that he did and and you know he obviously gets a lot of like really crunchy sounds like the the overall mix like there's a lot of saturation and and it was especially funny with this record kind of like he would he would do a mix and we would listen to it and try to figure out like what was making something sound saturated and then if you play the individual tracks like they all sounded really clean which is really wild to me that it's like it's it's really how it all mixes together and not so much like the whole mix is being slammed through something that's distorting um yeah. which is i mean that's 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 just wild to me yeah dave's use of compression and the way that he you know sort of coalesces things are um i mean i i would love to just be a fly on the wall for for his set. I like the way his records sound unique, but also never sort of losing what the artist is about. It's, it's never a Dave Fridman record. It's always the artist's record through like this filter, which I think is so cool.
yeah, we've been working with them for so long um, that we, it's, it's, it's fun to go up there because the, the time it takes to kind of get into the creative mindset is really chopped down because we're, we're so comfortable there. Everything is exactly the same as it was in 2006 or seven when we first went there. Um, and we, it's, it's, it's fun to, to get into this rhythm where we're working with Dave in a collaborative way. And there's always this element of like uncertainty and experimentation. And it's, it's, none of us are trying to ever do think something exactly the same or recreate something we've done before. Um, and it, it kind of makes it exciting. You never know when, when Dave has the first mix and we come downstairs from playing video games or watching Ben play video games, which is what I do, then, you know, it's, you're always kind of like, Oh God, like, what's it going to sound like this time? Um, and it's, it's fun to always still have that excitement, you know, even after that long of knowing each other and working together. Well, that's interesting. So do you feel that he's really wrangling things that much that you really don't know what's going to happen when you walk downstairs? Well, I think it's all relative though, because Ben and I are so particular and detail oriented that like things that would be huge things to us, other, most people wouldn't even care about. But for us, they're like, Oh God, like that, you know, that 2.4 second reverb, like, I can't believe he did that. Like, that's way too long. And like, you know, it just, but then that's, that's when we get into the the fun stuff. <laughs> uh, the first record we made, like our, our first full length album, which he mixed, we, we had a bunch of demos that we had, uh, had recorded in this, this like kind of makeshift studio in Brooklyn that we brought to him. And I think we really we were really insecure about using any of those recordings. And, you know, and, and his first impulse, which I mean, is obvious to me now is was that it's like, oh, these recordings have a vibe to them and and, you know, sound like human beings did it. And like this should go on the record, like we shouldn't try to recreate this with better sounds like to him. It was just like it doesn't matter the the quality of the recording. It's the you know, the performance and. So we we brought this stuff up to him and it was also like these these logic sessions that probably had like 90 tracks in them or something like that and it was and none of the tracks were labeled um so it was just all like track 1 track 2 track 3 if they were and... labeled it would be something like like bullshit <laughs> yeah. or, you know like <laughs> bullshit 4 <laughs> and and we really had no sense of like <laughs> how how to fit things together in a mix we just knew like we made a bunch of sounds that we thought were cool and they were all very important to us so we're like give him this thing that's like we want to hear all of these sounds at and we don't want to cut anything out and so he like he really labored over that and i I mean i think that's it was to me now it's like so impressive that he was able to do that where it's just like you really can hear all of the sounds that we had made on the record but like uh must have been really hard yeah i mean was there any sort of reconciliation for you guys like where you felt like you sort of surrendered to him in a way where he i think anytime you work with somebody like that and especially if early in people's careers and whether you're an artist or or especially an artist recording themselves you know, you learn from people that, you know, that you're, you know, you can call them your mentor or whatever. I mean, um, I mean, what was that like for you guys? Did you feel like he actually 
was able to achieve that with with your soup uh, and all the ingredients and make something out of it? Or was, was there some sort of learning for you guys along the way in terms of sort of accepting some of the limitations of that? I mean, I think the a lot of the learning for us, is, and I mean, he has been such a mentor to us. A lot of it is that like every recording process is different. Like every time you record a record is different. Like it's not, it's not like, I mean, I feel like every time he records a drum kit, he mics it up differently. Like he doesn't have like one way of doing things every time. And I think for him that keeps things fresh and interesting. And I think it's also, I mean, so much of it is about not making assumptions or not falling into your old habits to the point where you lose sight of the big picture. And I mean, the time that happened this time around, the most amazing thing that happened, one of the most amazing things that's ever happened to me in a recording studio was we were a being some effect that was on a track and we were having, it, it was like a little bit of like a tense moment creatively where it was like, all right, we're, we're going to try to do a blind test and just be like, what do we like better? And we all were kind of weighing in and it, this went on for a while. And then Dave said, I have some bad news for you guys. Like I thought that this button was a being this effect. And in reality, it hasn't been doing anything the whole time. And we've just been listening to the same thing over and over again. And, and it was like this incredible moment of, of like, realizing how much your mind can play tricks on you. And like, we all heard differences, like everyone in the room heard it differently. And in reality, it was just like nothing was happening at all. <laughs> well, you know, it's that that the old, uh, you know, producer trick would have like a fader, you know, that didn't do anything. and would <clears throat> let the whatever bass player or singer be like, yeah, just adjust. And they'd be like, like that. And they'd be like, yeah, I think that's better. Yeah, I was like, Same thing. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. Same thing with with uh, with the, when we were making records on Sony and, and there would be somebody who would you know, be approving and making suggestions. We would be like, sure. And we would do all their suggestions, but usually not change anything. Hey, just send them the same mix and be like, you mean like this? <laughs> same yeah. mix, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, but, but, but all this say, you know, oh yeah, thank you for your suggestion. That really yes, helps. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's such a gracious, it's important to make people feel like they've uh, contributed. It's the magic. That's the magic of collaboration. <laughs> Did you guys do bits of this on your own or was it just a complete, like you started, you did some writing, you came back, you worked on stuff and then went up to Tarbox and, and recorded the record or had, was this like a longer period of you guys kind of doing things individually, sending files back and forth, working at your own studios? Like how, how did that go? We did a lot of that too. A lot of like passing stuff back and forth. And we also had um, Dan LaPatton was involved also in the record and and adding some stuff uh and one of the things i liked a lot about that process was that we were all working in on like different systems and different DAWs and like we didn't have like the same plugins or whatever so if we sent things back and forth it was always stems and like not and, and like we would you know do every individual track but just print it with all the effects on it and in some ways it felt like i mean I, i've never never really worked on tape much at all but to me it felt kind of like recording to tape where it was like you just get the idea down and that's what it sounds like and there's not this sense of like going back and tweaking it endlessly later so like i think that like committing to things early on was really cool and i, I think it was also kind of fun because even if 
like you get different versions of tracks where it'd be like the EQ is like a little bit different on something though, you know, there probably, there might've been like 10 EQs, like 10 layers of EQ doing tiny little things that ended up being like, that's what the final track was, um, which was, I don't know, kind of fun. Yeah. So I, let me just make sure I heard you right. So, I mean, did a lot of those tracks end up, were they what you ended up after multiple sort of layers and people's putting stuff on i mean that's it's almost like you're saying it's almost like an old four track way right like you're 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 yeah. editing that's now fixed you're not going back and changing the you know what it yeah and like every now there were like very few times that we had to go back to an original session or like, like pull pull an earlier version of something because we had we heard some like click we needed to fix or something like that but most of the time it was like the final tracks would be whatever after this game of telephone, like passing something back and forth like 10 times. Um, so I definitely went yeah. through more people's hands and more, we worked in more studios and with more collaborators than we've ever done before. And it was fun to kind of, like Ben saying, like imprint things and, and build on it and, and not try to go back and revise as much. But um, also, you know, it led to some, some funny and frustrating things where we'd be like in a final mix session with Dave Fridman and be like, oh, there's there's actually three fretless bass tracks playing right now. Why don't we delete two of them? Because like at some point, like, you know, somebody did a new version of it and they just, we did it, we missed it and we kept it. So like, that was one thing that was a little bit frustrating. Um, you know, it was like, it, it took more oversight to, to keep things streamlined and how they should be i guess who's in charge of that in your band and trying to all the session management and that side of it before it gets to that's more like uh miles um so we worked with patrick wimmerly and, and miles robinson uh both on our last album and this album and, and miles is sort of like the engineer whiz and patrick's more executive producer does some engineering but um miles is good at organization um and, and everybody involved is, is it's not like there was like a, a slacker who was screwing things up. It was just more like there was a lot of people involved. Right, right. <laughs> so sometimes things would get missed. Some of these songs on this record, I mean, I, I put it on and anytime I, you know, I'm going to prep to do something like this, I, I listen to the record and then I listen to the record again. And then I start hearing things that make more sense as, you know, as a collection, I guess. And I always take notes about things that it reminds me of. And I wrote down, you know, Bowie, Beatles, The Air, Floyd, Flaming Lips, and Wings. And then I got down into the tracks, like nothing changes. And you've got these horns on there. And there's a moment in there that literally sounds like a 1976 Chuck Mangione record or something, you know? It's totally <laughs> oh, like... Yeah. Totally. Um, and then there's like this one little hint of John Hassel. T tell me about that song because A, it was the first one that really like, I was like, oh, this record is really cool. Like for me, it was like a center track even, you know, and it's sort of buried in the center of the record, but it it contextualized the songs that came before it on the record. Um, so I was just curious about that one. And you mentioned that that was like an earlier song so maybe it was sort of a, a seed that 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 the record bloomed from yeah that, that's a that's a slightly earlier idea um and it was one of those ones that uh the the basic kind of chord chord progression in that that intro melody that has the one off note and then the verse 
vocal melody had been in like circulating in my head and you know ben and i had worked on it for a while like you know a couple of years before we started making this album um and i, I knew it was going to go somewhere and actually wor worked on that one a little bit during covid lockdown um and like there's like a little like field recording uh that i made at the start of it and and like i played this this weird old like messed up guitar that was out of tune as like the main guide track that made the final which kind of makes it so that like because it's a really simple chord progression but there's just something a little bit like unsettling and, and off about it um so there was just a lot a lot of different elements that came in and uh obviously that you know the biggest silly silliness about it is that it's called nothing changes and it has the most abrupt and shocking like genre change right in the middle and there's a lot you know it's kind of like the a more proggy epic song in some ways and it's you know thematically saying nothing changes so that's kind of the classic mgmt joke there <laughs> um oh and the the horn arrangement on that is uh is dave Fridman's son john who we've we've known since he was really young um like since you know the first time we went up to Tarbox. um so that that was pretty cool getting him on the record and he's just like a he has a pretty brilliant musical mind so he did the arrangement Early. and played yeah yeah and and we we kind of were just like we know that this song like i was just saying needs like something just radically different coming in and we were just like you know go do something and see what happens and he brought it in and we like listened to it one time we were like what the hell is that <laughs> like that and then somehow we like the more we listen to it we're like well, yeah let's let's do this this is yeah fun. that's it's, that's <laughs> interesting um you mentioned another song that you st that you did in those early sessions with Dave. Which one was that? People on the, um, people people the streets. Street. Yeah. Tell me about that one. Yeah, that one's uh, that one started from uh, Andrew had this um, this emu uh, Proteus. Pro yeah, the Proteus. Like they they did this. Uh, was it the twenty five hundred? It's like a kind of like all in one like rack mount workstation thing with like all every sound you need on it and like a, a sequencer so it's just it's really easy to build up kind of loops and layers on it and so that was the beginning of that <laughs> and a lot of those tracks ended up on the final the final recording yeah there's there was the kind of verse and the chorus section were built on that with the uh, like sort of uh the bongo sound or whatever conga sound and I think the kind of like fake upright bass sound too. Um, fake upright bass was the was a chord Kronos, I think. Okay, maybe it was like fake fretless. But any any rate, um, that was one where, and we knew when we were making it then that we we had the title "People in the Streets," um, and then we kind of marinated on it for a while. And uh, I don't know that that's that's another song that I think we 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 kind of had a pretty solid version of early on in the album process and we felt really good about it and um you know it's it sort of incorporated all of the collaborators like you know Dan Lopatin was helping and and uh I got Ben to play a synth solo which is really difficult to do and I remember him doing it if, what like, difficult to get me to play a synth yes, solo to get yeah, it was very begrudging 
you like just played it you're like <laughs> i'm like yeah it's like finally i got ben to play a keyboard solo uh <laughs> so that's yeah that's amazing so so this album's like fun we have a we have guitar solos and keyboard solos and horn arrangements have you been adverse to solos in the past mainly because the, uh of like the muso factor kind of well i think i came like originally in high school i came from this very like jazzy like prog rock thing like that was like what i was really into and um and i think there was a, a certain moment where i was like thinking that it was really uncool to be into that and started you know getting into like velvet underground and like kraut rock and stuff and like this super minimal like like you know only like one note solos and, and stuff like that and then i think i've kind of come full circle where now i've i don't well a i don't care about what's cool at all and b i've, I've like come back to a lot of that music and thinking it's really like king crimson was my favorite band in high school and and i just watched the um the, there was a screening of the the King Crimson documentary that I guess it's been around for like a, a little while, but, but it's just getting like a theatrical release and it's, it's like incredible. Like, I, I think that the idea of people coming up with that music and being like, this is the music that is really important is like, so confounding to me. Um, and kind of amazing. Yeah. You mentioned the velvet underground. And I read that you guys asked Lou Reed to sing on a, on a song and he just he said it doesn't need it yeah but it wasn't like that's one of those stories that is actually a much like it's actually you know a really happy memory for me it, it wasn't like he was saying no like i don't want to do this it was like we we had a we met at uh le pen quotidien in chelsea with our managers and lou reed in the morning and I ordered oatmeal, Lou Reed ordered oatmeal, which I was excited about. And he mostly spent the whole meeting talking about um, his dogs because he was like obsessed with with his dogs. Um, and, you know, kind of came around. He's like, I, I dig it, but uh, I don't really know what I could do on it. So we're like, OK. And then he spent like the rest of the meeting talking about how managers are like terrible and like nobody should have a manager and there's like in front <laughs> of our, yeah. our manager yeah which made me love him even more that's funny yeah no that's <laughs> that was the sense i got when i read that that he was like no it's already good like you know um not that he was yeah. saying not make giving an excuse to not want to be on it um yeah it's a lot more exciting and a, a headline to say lou reed turned down ngmt <laughs> yeah. though yeah yeah right. Even though we eat oatmeal together, I think that's even better than having a, having an oatmeal story is better than him being on the record. Yeah, <laughs> and then I saw him. I think not long after that, uh, at the Westminster Dog Show at Madison Square Garden with my me and my friends. We were on mushrooms, and he was just like standing in a hallway. We were just like, "What?" And we didn't we didn't talk to him, but it was just like, "Wow, this is really strange." Everyone has their hobbies, man. <laughs> Yours is apparently yeah. eating psychedelics and going to dog shows. Right, that wasn't a time. That's to do pretty. That. That's a. Yeah. That's a. That's a new one. <laughs> Most people go out into the, you know, into the woods, but you go to downtown Manhattan. That's that's it's yeah. a choice, man. Um, for you guys, who have been a tight duo making music together, and as you've 
your career's gone on, you've expanded that that circle to include collaborators. Um, how do you guys decide, like, you know, who who you who you work with? I mean, I think that it it might be it might be obvious just as in terms of that this just feels right, but um, I think anytime you you need to be somewhat selective about that that process. I mean, it's especially when you guys were the band and the core. So as you've expanded it, how has there been any specific thought going into that? I think it's like more than anything, it's come down to like, like who do we trust or who do we have like a shared intuition about things? And, you know, especially, I mean, I think it's a lot of pressure to release something to, to be like, like, I don't want to be the last person to touch it because then it's like there's all this self-doubt involved so i think like especially having dave as somebody who we can channel stuff through is is pretty incredible because i mean it's the amount of trust that we have between each other and the amount like he he just really gets us and you know even when we feel like we have our own kind of musical language like when we talk about sounds that like over time, I think he, he understands that when we, you know, it's like, it might not make sense to anybody else, but he, he knows what we're talking about. Um, so that's a big deal. And I think also just our, the sense of our, when we're recording, there's this, this sense of family that we have and, and like everyone who's involved really does feel like part of that family. So yeah, I mean, it's none of, none of it's like technical or anything. It's all just like, I think more about good vibes than anything we're not very good at um at at pretending we like something that we don't like and you know if someone comes and wants to collaborate and we're not into the music we're not just going to do it you know just because they're hugely famous or get us some giant new audience or something like that you know it's it's like we just we just say no and um the people we end up collaborating with are usually people that we remain close friends with and and get along with really well and have like shared interests and influences yeah. and stuff. Was there any is there ever any thought about how you're going to present the stuff live when you're creating a record? Mostly like kind of laughing to ourselves when we think about how we could possibly do it. And I mean it's funny because this record in in a lot of ways sounds kind of like a band record or like it could be performed live but then when you really pick it apart like there's so many like edits and different tones you know like like many different guitar tones that happen through a song or something like that so i mean i think like in some ways we could play it just as a regular band but it wouldn't sound like remotely similar i think it does seem like the most um live oriented like like because a lot of the songs can be broken down to acoustic guitar you know like uh, i i think it's it's funny that the one album that in my mind is is more uh conducive to playing live is, is now we are, we're not touring or playing any shows <laughs> so so they're so you're actually not doing that you're not playing it live yeah yeah i mean we, we haven't we don't have anything booked at the moment yeah i think too for me it's the the idea of, of like what it means to perform live it's it's like why is it important that we convince somebody that you know we're actually 
physically playing all of the instruments live, you know, like that's, I feel like that, you know, doesn't really matter outside of like a few nerds who are really paying attention to that. And, and really it's more about like the energy and of the crowd and like yeah. the kind of back and forth between you know, whoever's on stage and whoever's in the audience and, and the dynamic of that. And, and uh, I mean, I always feel silly when we play live and, you know, I like, I can only play a maximum of like two, two lines at the same time. And or I guess if I was better at like pedal bass or something, maybe I could, but like, it's and it's it's like the idea of you know we have we started playing with backing tracks and we have a lot of stuff that are that's on those tracks and then it's like the things i'm playing live but i might play them exactly the same every night and then it's like who am i like who am i trying to impress by doing that like i don't know sometimes i feel like i'd rather just be on stage with a mixer and some like effects and just messing with the sound of things live what are you guys listening to these days Mm-hmm. all over the map really for me um but I, I do find myself um just because i've gotten into i have some really beautiful horn speakers and i collect vinyl and i've just been kind of getting uh copies of classics that that i listen to again they sound fresh like you know classic you know 40 year old guy stuff um and so, but I, I really haven't been enjoying Nick Drake more than uh, ever before. Um, Nick Drake and Judy Sill, and I guess there's more, more folky stuff. And then, and then I'll listen to like, you know, 1999 Tech House. Like, it's just like a, a weird balance of stuff. Yeah, I think, I don't know, lately, like we did a couple of... Uh... Like Andrew's more of a DJ than I am, but we've done a couple of DJ sets together recently, and it kind of it inspired me to go digging for more like just dance music in general. And somehow I've like kind of settled on just listening to a lot of random like really like abrasive techno music, which which is super fun. Um, especially I just I had a for a while I was driving around the '70s Mercedes that like only had radio and like couldn't really listen to music in the car that much and and i just got a, a car that actually has like a real stereo in it so i feel like driving around la listening to super loud techno is is like <laughs> at the mo moment really doing it for me nice yeah I, I remember when i was a i don't know i was probably like 18 or 19 and and uh, there's this bass player named mark johnson who, who uh he played with like bill frizzell and uh, you know kind of john abercrombie and guys like that and I was tasked with uh, picking him up from the airport, and and he had this this giant uh, casket for his upright bass, and I put it in my car, and I was super nervous, and and uh, I asked him, I said, oh, you know, I was, what music do you listen to? You know, he was kind of one of my heroes at the time, and he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really listen to music. <laughs> I remember, I remember <laughs> just being like. Okay, and I just spent spent oh, the rest yeah. of the spent the rest <laughs> of the drive just quiet, just dr driving. That's yeah, that's very relatable to me. I mean, I think I kind of I I really was enjoying just driving with no music, and I feel like like a lot of people that would make them feel crazy. But um, yeah, you got to have some space at some point, dude. <laughs> like you know, for your own thoughts to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I know I didn't ask you about any technical stuff, like you know what cables you use on your mics and stuff, but I mean, there was one. I will say that uh, I finally, in this album session, found a microphone that I like fell in love with, and that I feel like really suits my voice. And which what is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's the well, it's the Neumann M forty nine. And um, my favorite microphone, the one that I, is it the, the one that I sang through on first was had belonged to Johnny Cash. And I just had this like, I just it, it I was just like, I felt like it was this kind of like mystical thing. And we got a a clone of or no, the I think the flea version or something. Um, and it sounded great. And then Friedman loved it so much that he got one of the new Neumann versions and so i just i, I love that that there's this, this microphone that became the vocal sound for the whole album yeah i thought that was cool too because it was like uh to me like it's it's like obviously colored in some way but it also just sounds like it makes things sound like music and i think like that's something i i like thinking about a lot lately is like this idea of like even like listening to any recording of a band like a band playing live or whatever it's like if you actually are in a room listening to people playing on like amps and drums or whatever it never sounds like a record like what you think of as a recording of a band so just like thinking of like what you know all of those things being filtered through these things that we're used to hearing and yeah to me like that was probably the first time to me that i've heard someone singing on a microphone where i was just not even thinking about the sound like the gear aspect of it but just being like that sounds like music yeah no it's so interesting and i think that like i mean we could spend we could spend all day talking about this but like that idea like what you just what you just mentioned is that because of the gear and things like the neve console and the m49 microphone and the you know the you know what a yamaha grand piano versus a steinway grand like all these things we've been taught what music sounds like or is supposed to sound like or rock music is supposed to sound like because the music that I grew up on was recorded, you know, to tape and um, up to a certain point, of course. And, you know, using all that classic gear and all those classic microphones and all that classic processing and like the sound of a, you know, uh, LA-2A and all just all the stuff and the Fairchild, like with the Beatles and that drum sound and you're right it doesn't sound like anything like you hear it in the room and yet it's like this presentation and this hyper realism i mean that's the fascinating part of recording right like that's the that's the magic of it and there is something that is sort of magic about it you know and and also to add to that i think that i think that tape plugins are really funny like that's like one of my favorite things now like a genuinely favorite because uh, there's like this idea of like making something really sound like tape. And it's like, like it never, nothing ever sounded like that, but it's like this very particular, it's like weird, like, like playing with nostalgia for something that never happened where like, I don't know, it's almost like the less realistic, the better to me. And I don't know that, that stuff I get excited about now. And like, especially it's like, it's so cheap now too. Like anyone can have that. And I don't know. I'm like, I'm not a purist really when it comes to that, I guess. Um, But also it's funny. Like I remember reading somebody like 
somebody's like user review of like one of those like universal audio like studer plugins or something and be like like it's basically saying like it's not fucking my sound up enough and it's like no it's supposed to sound like just nice like a nice recording to tape it's not supposed to do anything right. crazy that's yeah <laughs> like yeah yeah i don't know that's that's that stuff is pretty yeah. funny to me all right guys well i'll let you go and i i thank you for your time it's been fun to chat with you yes thank you you too thank nice you so much Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. I can see you standing there. But still there's nothing to reply. The world's my My Spanish castle in the sky. I can see you floating there But still there's nothing to define If I'm worlds away I'm holding mountains in my hands Starlight is never going to let me down Until I stumble like a drunkard